0: Hello, hello, all of my wonderful podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting me and my podcast. This is your host, Ayla Anderson, and I have a few small, exciting announcements before we get started with today's episode. So I started this podcast because I am a huge museum nerd. I love museums, obviously, and I wanted to work for a museum, so I thought, Doing this podcast would be a great way to share what I love about museums and then also get a better understanding of how museums run, potentially find some leads on getting into the museums. So my super exciting news is that I just got hired as an exhibit instructor for the Calvert Marine Museum in Solomons, Maryland, and it is because of this podcast. So yay! I'm really, really excited. And If you remember, we did a three-part special on the Calvert Marine Museum, and it was kind of through doing those interviews that I met a lot of the staff, and they suggested that I apply for this upcoming position. I applied, and I got it. So that's super exciting information for me. Don't worry, I'm still going to continue with the podcast. It's my passion baby and I'm not going anywhere. So, I'm going to keep doing these episodes, hopefully keep improving these episodes and and provide really, really amazing content for you guys. So today, we're going to be at the National Museum of the Marine Corps and it just opened yesterday. And so the 17th of May was their first day that they were allowed to be open throughout the pandemic. So it's perfect timing. If you're around here, please try to go. I'm going to try to go this week and check it out for myself. And if you want to see any of the pictures from this episode for the things that we talk about, you can go to my website, CuratorsChoicePodcast.com. And... You can also follow on Facebook or Instagram and if you guys have any feedback, if you guys have any requests for museums that you'd like to hear done or maybe some constructive criticisms or just anything, uh, I'd love to connect with you guys. So you can send me an email, you can make a comment on Facebook or Instagram, Uh, but I really appreciate your guys' support and I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to our episode. Today, we're here with Owen Connor, and he is the uniforms and heraldry curator at the National Museum of the Marine Corps. I said it all right, and now I know what heraldry is, because I had no idea before.
1: The bigger one is vexology. When you start looking for vexologists. That's the, uh, the history of flag, uh, the f- folks who study flags. I, I was confusing it with ventriloquist when I was a curator. So.
0: <laughs> and I was thinking something's vexing like something's like troubling. Yes,
1: yes, I, I had a boss who had me filling out forms to go to a vexology conference. And I was, I thought he totally lost his mind. I thought it was something like Harry Potter or something there, but uh, we all learn in these jobs. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, so what do you do at the museum?
1: I am the curator, the senior curator, as we said, of uniforms and heraldry, but we do lots of things. We wear lots of hats, like all curators. Uh, My favorite thing that I get to do is shape our collecting. I've developed the collection rationale for our section and had a big influence on the museum. And what we look to collect from the public. And and that's my favorite part of the job is working with families. Most of the objects we have donated to the museum come directly from marine families um, who care care for these things. They either come from the living veterans or their descendants. And uh, that's really been the thing that I've enjoyed the most is how we've changed over the years. You know, the the, the traditional phone call, if you were sitting in my desk as a curator, you would get the phone call and the family calls up and they say, I have my dad's two coats, two uniforms, a blue one, and a green one. And it's pretty much 80% of my calls start that way. And, and when I first got there, you know, the attitude was to display things, you know, well, we've got lots of blue coats, and we've got lots of green coats. And, and that, you know, in a pure collecting sense, that's okay. But where I've evolved is, you know, it's not a coat, it's a person's artifact, and it's their story. And we really, really, I never say no without seeing the objects. I like to have people send us photographs. We start asking them, do you have grandpa's letters? Do you have his photo albums, you know, and then that's, you know, slow process of building up sort of a a file and and, and picture of who this person was. And And, you know, we look for the objects that would allow us to sort of document them in a little time capsule of what they did and their service. And in doing that, you know, you you really uncover fun stories and interesting stories that are really important.
0: So unfortunately, because of COVID, I am not actually able to come in person, but I did look online to your website and you guys actually have a lot of online resources. And then like you're talking about all of these different kind of delvings in that you guys do for different art, artifacts and the exhibits that you have. And I was really surprised the amount of exhibits you guys have. They look, from the pictures at least, they look pretty amazing. So what 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 would you see when you first walk into the museum and what kind of is your layout?
1: The first thing you notice about our museum, I think, is just the architecture from the outside. It's this sort of gigantic, it looks like a interstellar battleship turret or something, you know, and people are kind of weirded out. Um, I, I, I would, which wish I had a dollar for every time somebody says, I drive by that every day. I always wondered what the heck that was, you know, and it looks so awesome at night. It's basically a big glass dome with steel structure. And what it is, is a uh, uh, sort of a, um, impressionistic view, modern view of the Iwo Jima flag raising is what it is. You know, it's neat at night. It lights up and you can see the aircraft when you're driving, you know, on the interstate past it. And, you know, that that was one of the biggest things when they built the museum we really had no idea who was going to be our visitors you know who how many people they thought that maybe it might just turn into a glorified rest station you know for people coming off the interstate to use the bathroom or get a snack they just really didn't know and they were really pleased, you know, with the numbers. We, I forgot. You have to talk to our PR people. But we've had like over three million visitors. Um, it's it's you know, being in Northern Virginia, you know, you were saying you don't know a lot about the Marine Corps or military history. It's pretty common. You're you're our normal visitor coming through those doors. Um, you, it's a free museum, just like the Smithsonian. So I can always guarantee you a parking space, and I can get you in for free. And and you know, it's awesome. And People come in and they just want to learn. We're an American history museum first, you know and foremost because Marines are Americans and that's that story. So you'll always get something out of it. But when you walk in, you sort of get impressed and you see all this wonderful light and you know the big one of the big selling things in the museum when we first opened was the life cast figures. These are um, you know basically they're not just mannequins. People get really offended. You know, call them the dummies or the mannequins, but they they basically we hired these really top. Line of museum companies, uh, and and they they basically slather guys up and you know make castings of them, and we pick we auditioned mar- Marines, real actual Marines who fit the right body types. You know it's a real hard thing to do. You don't want today everyone looks like an action figure, but in World War II they didn't, and and that's the kind of thing we really do. You know, and as a curator, I get involved in some of that because they come to me. Well, what do you dress the figures in? You have to have the right uniforms. You have to have the right you know the way they wore them and folded their leggings and you know pants and things like that so it, you know it gets very technical and so much thought goes into all of those you know whenever We do a cast figure scene. I end up becoming part, you know, naturalist, environmentalist. I have to know what kind of wheat was growing in France at the time, the poppies. You know, like they've flown me up to Iwo Jima, and I've taken pictures of, you know, the sand and the little plants and everything. So you know, I get to be part master and commander, naturalist as well as a a curator, and it's really quite fun. Um, But those figures are really our our big, you know, kind of they, they, you know, a point throughout the museum with these is to have. Have these uh, displays sort of feel like immersion, literally, immersion galleries where, you know, when you go through the World War II gallery, the Korea gallery, the Vietnam gallery, there's always sort of a central immersion themed exhibit where you feel like you walk through a portion of the battlefield. You know the most dramatic ones probably Korea, where you go into a night battle in the mountains, and, and it's the freezing cold. Of they're breaking out, and the Chinese are chasing the the Marines out, and the Marines are fighting in reverse retreat to get out. And uh, you know, but there's frozen Chinese bodies, there's flares and noise going off, and it's dark, and you have the. Air conditions are all cranked down to about 50 degrees, so you really get the feeling, (laughs) to a certain extent, of how miserable it would have been for them. I think I've always joked we coddle the visitors too much. We should really get it down to negative 20. You know, it it would move people through it much quicker. But uh, but it's a big thing for us to try to make your put you in the shoes of the combat boots of those Marines for a few moments to understand what they were going through and what they were doing.
0: I think it's really cool to have that kind of an immersive experience. And, you know, I was looking, you guys have a really amazing kind of introductory video on your uh, main webpage, and I can post that on the page for this episode, but it talks about those exhibits, how they, you can feel the wind and sometimes there's even smells. And uh, so, I mean, I, I'm really excited to to go whenever I do have the opportunity because it seems pretty awesome one thing that I did note as well we were talking about the architecture of the building to look like the flag raising in Iwo Jima and apparently you guys have the photograph and then the the photographer he signed that photograph right before he died and you also have the flag in a case that was actually the flag from that photograph
1: yeah yeah no that's pretty cool yeah that's you know it was a. As a vexologist that I <laughs> regret that I am, um, no, the flag. We always joke the flag is the star of the museum. I mean, it it is, you know, it's you know, short of the Star Spangled Banner, it's probably the most iconic American image there is, and and uh, you know, certainly an iconic flag there is, and an image. I think it stands alone um, for you know, it's how important it is. The uh, the, the the things are sort of a cultural. Marvel, it represents more than just the Marine Corps. Most people don't even think of the Marine Corps when they see the Iwo Jima flag raising. It sort of became synonymous with victory and Americans pulling together. I have files I keep was a, you know, with the cultural curator that we have, you know, how many times it's misappropriated by folks, whether it's for Earth Day photos or you know, liberation of this or that. You know, it, it could be anything, you know, commercial capitalism comments you see them lifting them at Donald sign you know and, and it's just sort of really powerful and interesting how it affects people and so many people come in you know to the museum and, and that's you know the one thing they want to see um i give a big uh, my normal long-winded talk and i give lots of long-winded talks the uh, is the story of the flag and how it got to the museum and my main thing, I don't, I, there was recently a bit of a, a controversies and a, a, the original flag raisers were misidentified um, from the very beginning. And and it, it's very complicated. You can read a whole book on it there. Uh, been, you can download it for free from the Marine Corps History Division's website. The, the more important thing with the Iwo Jima flag is it's the first modern media event in a war. You know, It takes on this different meaning. You, know, you have these snapshots that come out of a war in Vietnam or, or Afghanistan today, and that's very common. But back then, it didn't really exist. When they first went to war, they had artists going out and deploying and drawing sketches like courtroom sketches. The Iwo Jima flag was, you know, Iwo Jima invasion was one of the most heavily covered invasions up to that point. It was, you know, there was 90-some reporters hitting the beaches and fighting. There was color film crews. It was just a lot of stuff going on. And that moment that that photo was taken, Rosenthal was the famous photographer. Um, he didn't know he even got the photo. Uh, he just snapped the random photo and it just happened to be good and then he posed everyone around it but that photo goes from the battlefield to the front pages of sunday newspapers in about 48 hours they used an early fax type machine to get that beam from from the islands after where they developed the film out to back to the united states and it just takes off you know that image is just so glorious and looks so wonderful um people actually thought it was fake that they posed it and that becomes a mini scandal when they ask they ask rosenthal you know that you faked that photo tom didn't you you know and and he's like well yeah i had them all posed for it and so it gets leaked out he posed it well, it wasn't that photo at all. There was a second photo he called the gung ho photo where he didn't know he got it. And he told all the guys, get around the flag and rave your guns and act like idiots. And it's kind of a common World War II image you'll see in a lot of places. So he mis- you know, he sort of is misinterpreted. And that comes up and that causes a huge ruckus. All these Marines are going in the newspaper offices and threatening to beat up the reporters who said the flag's fake. And it's really fun. I mean, and then the flag takes on this whole life of its own. It travels around the country. Country. it's used for veterans things you know they fly it at the capitol when franklin roosevelt dies it's in the film why we, we joke about that? the iwo flag is our movie star it's in the film sands of iwo jima there's two original flag raisers who actually weren't flag raisers but were thought to be at the time the two original marines they hand the flag to john wayne the actor and it's folded and that is the actual iwo jima flag they don't use it of course for the actual filming because the flag's different and at that point it's damaged and things but it's it's kind of neat that it's in the film, and John Wayne held that flag, and that that always gets people excited. So, yeah, it is the star of the museum. Uh, we we generally in the past we'd rotated both the first flag placed on Iwo Jima.
0: Unfortunately, because this was a Zoom interview. We had a little bit of an issue with some siren going off during this next section, but I wanted to make sure that you didn't miss it. So he has the first flag and then the second flag placed was actually the iconic flag that is in the photographs. So just so you guys know that moving forward.
1: We would rotate them. I I kind of put a stop to that for artifact safety. You know, we were trying to limit light exposure and just, you know, keeping things on permanent display. But people would be upset uh, when they would come and they don't get to see the flag. You know, that's the thing that everybody enjoys seeing. So it's as close to a permanent display as we can get. Hence, I have no hair and an ulcer where I've tried to always care for it, make sure, you know, people are taking care of it there. So.
0: So for the flags, how long was the first flag up? And then they ended up putting up the iconic photograph flag.
1: Well, not very long at all. A few hours is the exact I can get you. I have a whole notes for notes moments there, um, but it's, it's not up for very long. There is a lot of lore and mythology with it. You know, if you watch Flags of Our Fathers and things, you know, the, the secretary of the Navy wanted to take it. and You know, it, it, there's all these stories. But if you look at the two flags in common sense, format there the first flag's just about a a little larger than a standard house flag and and these are all ship flags they were brought, brought down but they have a big sunday service sized flag was the second larger flag they wanted the people to be able to see it and that was the main thing when we talk about the first flag we always talk about it it's very important to the guys who were in the battle you know that moment that first flag goes up all the ships honked and the men cheered the men that weren't trying to get killed you know which i always chuckle how many men were actually paying attention to this while they were in the middle of a battle, but, uh, you know, they, it was a big deal for those guys who were fighting on the beach, but, you know, they were fighting in the island, but then, you know, they basically took it down so you could see it. It wasn't up very long. They put up the second flag. The second bike stays up for weeks. Most people think when the flag goes up, the battle's over, but it actually just really begun. They, they get up to the top of the mountain within about three days and, you know, they, they fight their way to the top, but they use it for the rest of the, the battle, which goes on for weeks. And uh, it becomes really, if you see the winds, you know, you always see the pictures of it when it's up, the wind, how hard. Harsh the winds are from the top of the mountains, it actually starts to fray and, and is damaged while it's up there. And, you know, so as you see the flag today, it, it has damage to it. And uh, it, it's, it's quite interesting how long that stays up. But then, you know, the Marines almost immediately, one of my big jobs is always keeping the authenticity of that flag locked tight. You know, there's so many American flags you could, you know, compare it or mix it up with there. And, and there's always some old sailor veteran who claims he stole the real one from the Marines and, you know, that sort of thing. So it's my job to prove it. But we have all the documentation, to, even in World War II, where the flags were delivered to a small museum, uh, our forerunner at Quantico in 1945, just you know, several months after it when that was identified, they sent three flags back that were flown on the island, the first, the second, and then a cemetery flag that was flown because they recognized the importance of of it and the, the iconic you know just how iconic it would be even then they realized how important it was
0: i'm kind of curious there was kind of a big scandal about the people who actually were the people who put up the flag versus what was printed in the newspapers as who was the person so what happened with that
1: um well it, what happened was uh, james bradley the son of of bradley the corpsman who uh, wrote a famous book flags of our fathers and you know, he really brought a lot of this to the current public's attention. You know, he, he celebrated his father, was the foreman that was in there, and they. I don't know if you've seen the movie. Have you seen Flags of Our Fathers? The movie. Yeah, I mean, basically, these men were pulled off the top of the mountain, and that, the ones that were still surviving, and they were told to go on a war bond tour to promote. It was a war, the final war bond tour of the war. It raises more money than all the other war bond you know runs had done. It, the imagery of the flag helps drive this and and but the the guys who did this were really troubled they saw this as kind of like what the hell are we here for why are our friends dying there and there was Ira Hayes the the Pima Indian who was there and he was really upset by it and the the flags of our father sort of tells this story Renee Gagnon and Bradley the guys who are sort of the best known of these flag raisers and uh you know it really gets out there but there was always these little mysteries, you know, if you see the photos and you can find it in the uh, investigating EWO book that there's there's so many guys that are up at the top of the mountain at that time. And even the Marines at the time sort of, you know, it's a quick thing. They're just throwing this thing up. They lose track of who was there for the first flag, who was there for the second flag. I mean, and they're in the middle of a, a war. Right, right. And they're not they, they didn't even have a concept that this was being filmed. I mean, this is World War Two that, you know, maybe today we're all taking selfies and we have this conscious realization of it these guys didn't have a clue so what happens is they start just grabbing guys and say well we know Bradley was up there for all the flag raising and Gagnon was there and you know so they they start inserting that these guys were there and they got some right and some wrong but it's crazy that the two most prevalent ones was actually the corpsman who's a medic basically a Corman is the Navy doctor assigned to Marines and the runner who was running back and forth with messages and things and he was there so both those guys were there for both flag raisings but the humor was in reality what we discovered in recent years was they weren't the actual guys that lifted the flag and they kept this Secret their whole lives, you know, and and it was some amateur historians who actually started looking at the equipment and the way these guys wore their uniforms and breaking down the photo that actually caught it. Then the Marine Corps decided to weigh in officially because they had to answer for it, and you know, it it was kind of a little egg in our face. And once they identified it, they still missed another guy, and that came out in the second report. Um, but it you know goes back to what I was saying is I never. When you look at the photo, the men's faces are anonymous in the photo. If you could see them laughing or smiling or crying or whatever it was, it would take away, you know, from the flag itself and what they were doing. And and so it was always sort of a trivia thing, but people really care and, and you know it was it was important. And I'm glad we solved it.
0: So we have this really, really iconic artifact that you guys have. And then as you were saying earlier, what often happens to you is you get a phone call and someone's like, I have these two jackets but you're kind of more of looking at the stories of the people who own those jackets. So do you have any memories of a story that particularly stood out to you? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, this gentleman called me, uh, he he said he had a world war II uh, Marine Corps insignia. We call them ornaments uh, that they wear on their uniforms, little Marines are, if you ever see a Marine, They'll have a tattoo, bumper sticker, flags. They're very proud they're Marines. And this Eagle Globe and Anchor, the EGA is what they call it, you know, is like their decoder ring, their, their Masonic ring. They all wear. But this, this fellow has it. And he's an interesting story. He says, I have a World War II Eagle Globe and Anchor. It was given to me when I, he's not even a Marine. It was like given to me at a summer camp in 1954 by a little kid. He said his dad had it on Iwo Jima. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, it's a dress uniform piece. It makes no sense. You know, the whole story is kind of goofy. World War II insignia are really pretty common, even though they're nice and collectors would want them. Um, They're mass produced. Older ones are really fascinating because they're made by jewelers. Like uh, you'd have to go to a jeweler like Bailey Banks and Biddle as an officer and have them made. So they they can be jewelry grade and very exciting. So but I said, you know, all right, well, that sounds Great. It just send me a photo, you know, and I'll promptly file it and probably, you know, just give you a polite response back. And but he sends it in and I recognize really quickly it's not what he said. It was this very ornate what I was talking about earlier a- emblem. And even then, while I'm not the subject matter expert on all emblems, like a coin collector, I know folks who are. And I sent it off for identification to a good friend of ours, a historian. And we re- we identified it. It's a 1918 French Paris made, made in France, uh, Marine Corps emblem. So how the hell does this end up on Iwo Jima is my question. It makes no sense. Well, it turns out, so... Back backtracking, the donor was a a kid in 1954 at a summer camp, and he befriends this little guy getting beaten up at the summer camp. And the little kid was named Max Gilfalon Jr. And his nickname's Maxie. And Maxie, you know, befriends him. He befriends Maxie to take care of him from getting bullied at the camp. And Maxie's father had just died, and he was a marine. And he, at the end of the summer camp, he gave this. This ornament to Buddy Leach, this guy, he's not a Marine, and he said, "You're you're a tough guy like my dad, and I want you to have this." And it meant something to him. And you know, this guy's, uh, you know, calling me now, and he's in his 60s, you know, or 70s, and he's donating. He wants to donate this thing to us, and uh, so we knew because it was Max Gilfalon Jr. We were able to start doing the research. Who's Max Gilfalon? And it turns into this amazing story that he is a Marine that fought at the Battle of Bella Wood in, in World War One, which was. Is the most costly battle in Marine Corps history. And they lost more men in those three weeks at Wood, France, stopping the German offensive than they'd lost in their entire history up until that point. From the Revolutionary War to 1918, they'd lost more men, like 3,000-some guys die in this battle. It's a total of that. But it's sort of the birth of the modern Marine Corps. It's, it's their sort of, you know, really, it, it's vent, hollowed ground to Marines. So he takes part in this battle. He survives. He serves through the war. He, he would have bought these probably, post-war for like victory parades and things after the war's over maybe you got them on leave in paris but they're really nice and uh but you know that would have been the story okay well how the hell does he end up on iwo jima But he stays in the reserves through the interwar years, and he's called back to service like a lot of old Marines for World War II. And he serves in the United States, mostly in sort of admin roles, teaching roles, like a lot of the guys do. But by 1945, the manpower situation so bad, you know, they're really scraping the barrel by Iwo Jima and Okinawa. They're sending 19-year-olds, 33-year-old guys who have children were subject to the draft suddenly. I mean, America really wasn't you know, as dominant as people tend to think, we were running out of people. So Max Gilfalon Sr. is called back and he ends up being an officer, supply officer with the Amphibious Corps landing on Iwo Jima. And his dad did fight the Battle of Iwo Jima and ends up receiving a bronze star and surviving the battle. And so this little ornament that you took the phone call from is connected to two of the most iconic battles in, you know, Marine Corps history. I mean, if you were to say your granddad fought at Bellawood, and Iwo Jima, these are the like, you know, you Marines would bow before you for how awesome they are. And I take great pride in that one just because it all started with not being lazy in a phone call, the, the kind of thing we had. I had another one similar, and I'll, I'll be briefer. But uh, we had one, a bracelet showed up. Um, a, a couple up in Annandale, Virginia, were digging in their garden. And there's an article, I can send you links to both of those. I've written little social media logs, the Inc. blog showing the photos. And stuff. But this, this couple brings uh, a, a bracelet to us. It's just like a sweetheart bracelet. And they're very common in World War II. Um, uh, you know identification you didn't have DNA to identify bodies the dog tags were something that Marines kind of didn't have the same tradition as the Army and Navy of wearing them a lot they were they were sort of fallible they could fall off and be lost a lot but uh, the, we have got this bracelet that was found in a rose garden they were just digging in their garden in Northern Virginia and this family finds this little sweetheart bracelet and it has his name and rank and he, little eagle globe and anchor and saying yeah he's proud to be a Marine on there and on the back it says from uh, to Dale from Dolores. And so that's all we know. We know his major, his name's uh, Everton, Major L.D. Everton, and he has a girl named Dolores. And that's all we know. And so the hunt is on and, you know, we, we go through it and we got really lucky with that one because, you know, the name's not so common, but also the fact it turned out he was an aviator and aviators are a giant subculture within the subculture of Marine Corps history. And so we were able to really you know, dig into his history and it turned out he was a fighter ace on Guadalcanal has a long lengthy career, you know, it's pretty amazing stuff. And, you know, that, that's just the kind of thing that's just so awesome when, you know, this thing that came from a rose garden. And now, you know, when we redo that gallery, it's one of my top things I want to have displayed out there. This was probably something he wore fighting in the Pacific and he lost it in a rose garden, probably Mad Men style in the 1950s. I don't want to know what was going on where he's losing his jewelry out in the backyard, but uh, f- pretty awesome. And those are the stories I, I really, really love.
0: Well, it's really cool that you guys kind of have a scavenger hunt. After you've found the object, it's kind of a reverse scavenger hunt, really.
1: Yeah, no, it, it's changed. I mean, I've done my master's program paper on the origins of diversity in the Marine Corps. And, you know, World War II is the very first time you see the Marine Corps beginning to resemble what it is today. You know, they had a long way to go. But just like a Frank Kapper film, you have to start somewhere, usually the little guy at the bottom. But by the end of the war, you know, women are serving in really meaningful ways. You know, 30,000 some women in like, you know, 300 different MOSs, occupational duties. They weren't just being secretaries like they were used in World War I. Um, You know, you have African-Americans serving for the first time, even though they're segregated, but they're there, you know, and they take pride in being Marines. And, you know, you have Hispanic Americans reaching the rank of general at the time for the first time. Natives are serving in disproportionate numbers. If you look, even though the military was segregated until the 1950s, If you looked at the Marine Corps, um, you know, as a whole in World War Two, it looks like the Marine Corps, when I go in to get lunch in town, you know what it, it represents America and that. You know that's fun. History is always complicated. We always have to look for those stories, and that's the thing I love.
0: Well, thank you so much for teaching me so much about the Marine Corps and for being um, so informative on my podcast. I really appreciate you.
1: I appreciate it. It We do it again sometime. It was much easier than the normal one. You asked great questions, which is always. Oh,
0: (laughs) (laughs) well, thank you. I'm something of a professional myself
1: you could google me i've I've been on like history Channel and c n n and these things, and you know they don't always go off very well sometimes you never know what you're going to get asked so
0: I would just like it to go on record that I got complimented in comparison with all these other really well known places so boom. <laughs>